Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Dr. Stephen Bradley, your host, joined with Nate Jones, your co-host for today's episode. We are so excited. We are hosting a panel discussion today. We've been able to get a prolific group of psychiatrists, mental health experts, and we're starting a conversation that's going to last the next two episodes, the next two weeks. Tune in next week to hear the second part. This panel features three incredible psychiatrists, Dr. Danielle Hairston. She's a double board certified psychiatrist and residency program director. She was also my resident when I was a medical student. Dr. Kevin Simon, he is a Harvard trained board certified, uh, double board certified psychiatrist as well. And Dr. Amanda Calhoun, who is finishing up her adult and child psychiatry residency. Again, a prolific author, and speaker. And over the next two weeks, we're going to have a discussion with them about the state of mental health in the Black community. We're going to talk about their experiences as Black physicians and mental health experts. We're going to talk about the experiences that their patients have and how we can do more to increase the state of mental health in our communities. We're going to talk about burnout, a bunch of other topics and so excited to just jump into today's discussion. Check out the show notes. They've written quite a bit, and I've posted links to some of the papers that they've written, as well as a link to our new store. That's right, you asked. We delivered. The Black Earth Podcast now has some swag. You can go there, check out some t-shirts and coffee mugs and other stuff if you're interested. We'll hear a message from our sponsor, Picmonic, and then jump into today's episode. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. <laughs> I'm joined with Dr. Amanda Calhoun. She is a psychiatry fellow. Dr. Danielle Harrison, um, she's back on the show. She is a psychiatrist and an adult psychiatrist and program director at Howard University Hospital. And Dr. Kevin Simon, who is a child and adolescent and adult and addiction medicine psychiatrist. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes. Awesome. So I, so with our like newer format of things, we'd like to have more of like a conversation. I think in the past, we've done mainly like just like journeys and stories. And I think that's also helpful. Um, but we're going to just have like some conversations and just go from there. Steven, I don't know how you want us to break it up, but I think the first topic we, we want to talk about was mainly like looking at like what's the mental health, like the load that black doctors carry and how that is similar and also very different from our sort of white, white counterparts. I'll just get into it. Okay. Yeah, well, we can just go. We can just dive in. <laughs> so, 
psychiatry can be a lot, right? It can weigh mm-hmm. on you a lot. You see a lot of things. You hear everything there is. Like I say, as a psychiatrist, nothing surprises me. I can have a very like just blunt affect because there's just so much that you have to hear, that you listen to, and you try not to, you know, take it on yourself and absorb it. But when it comes to the mental health load for Black doctors, like you're, you see the suffering, you see the issues, you see the struggles for your people, and then you're going through it yourself as well. So I say, you know, I'm a Black person first. Like I am a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, yes. But first, I'm a Black person who is experiencing the same things that my patients are, that my community is going through. So it is concerning to me, just like it is for my patients, wondering what what's going to happen to my partner, what's going to happen to myself, if I'm going to get stopped by the police, if I can go out and protest, if something's going to happen to me for making a statement against racism, like mm. all these things, that's the part that our white counterparts don't go through. Like they don't go through that. They're not, they can say that they're advocates. They can say that they support you, but they don't go through that. It's the lived experience of being a black person in this country. So that's the added weight on top of psychiatry, on top of medicine, on top of medical school and your training and all that you have to go through. There's the weight that this is actually me. I'm experiencing this. This is not something that I'm just researching and writing about and talking about. This is me and this is my life. Yeah, I would say all of that and... For me, the most upsetting part or one of the most upsetting parts in addition to that is just seeing how my Black patients are treated in the medical system. And as Black doctors, once we put ourselves out there as being committed to fighting racism, and even if you don't put yourself out there that you're committed to fighting racism as a Black doctor, Black patients often will come to you when they're being treated poorly in the medical system. And that's really, you know, as a resident, you know, I see my Black patients being treated differently. So an example is restraints. I know, and I knew before I was a co-author on a recent paper that was in JAMA Pediatrics that Black children were being restrained more. I knew it because I was watching it happen. I would watch, you know, white staff take a much longer time to verbally de-escalate white patients who were throwing things, hitting people. Mm-hmm. You know, they would restraints would be treated as the last resort, physical restraints, which they should be. And then I would see my black patients and some of my, you know, some of my brown patients too, get a little bit upset and immediately they're in restraints. And that was really hard for me to see, to witness, first of all. And then second, I found a lot of difficulty in speaking up against it because I felt like I didn't really have the power to change it on particular rotations I'm on because I'm not the person in charge of the unit, you know, and I'm the resident that's rotating on there for like a temporary amount of time. So that was really upsetting for me because I don't just talk to talk. Like I want things to get better and I want to actually affect change. And I feel like sometimes I'm like running against a wall sometimes because people, the white staff, frankly, can be really resistant. And so if you say, why are you restraining Black patients more? That causes this whole conversation. And then I sometimes, not always, I sometimes become the problem at that point. So that's just been, I think, in addition to things that Dr. Harrison said, just witnessing, standing witness to that and feeling like powerless really to be able to help my patients, my Black patients, has been really hard for me to wrestle with. And let me just add to that. It's So we have this opportunity to be a part of the system, right? We have this opportunity to be 
in medicine. We're on the Black Doctors Podcast, right? So we have this opportunity to be Black doctors, to affect the change. That's what you all wrote. We all wrote in our personal statements. We want to make a change. We want to help people, right? So, but then you get into the system and then you have to ask yourself, like, am I a part of the system? Am I protecting my people or am I allowing for things to be perpetuated because I'm here? Because they're like, well, see, you're still here. You're in this system. You're writing these meds. You're writing the restraints. You're agreeing that this is how we should treat people. You're just standing here. And that, you know, that causes some internal conflict for yourself. But you're you're here like, I want to help. I'm in this system. How can I make change? I try to make change. These people look like me. I feel for them. Then they might say, well, you're overly identifying with your patients. Like, Mm. oh, well you're starting to feel that the same feelings are, are those your feelings or that's what you're going through with your patients. Are you able to be objective? And then, you know, just small things like that make you wonder why am I in this system or how can I survive this system and also help others? And I think that that's something that when we think about our counterparts, be they attendings or medical students from the top to the bottom, they don't have to go through. They don't have those same questions or they might, if they're allies mm-hmm. and they're not being performative, but they still don't have that same internal questioning and that same question that you ask yourself, like, what is my place in this system? Yeah. And Kevin, uh, what has your experience been, kind of that dichotomy of being a Black uh, resident, psychiatrist, all of the above, in uh, predominantly white institutions? Interesting enough, so for residency, I was at Morehouse School of Medicine, which is affiliated with Grady. But still, nonetheless, um, there's still a predominance of non-Black patients that I would see. And then we were at the VA. So I think I would echo what Dr. Harrison and Dr. Calhoun mentioned in terms of being in the system. And then you're like, at a certain point, you know, if you're an intern or PGY2, you're just trying to figure out, like, what's normal, what's not normal, right? And then eventually pattern recognition happens. And I'm not even talking about patterns of like conditions, but patterns of like, wait a minute, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Calhoun noticed uh, my pediatric patients that are of color, Yeah, they're saying that they're aggressive. They're saying that, you know, hot tempered, um, restraint. And you're like, but this same kid over here just happened to have, you know, less melanin, more blonde hair or something. Um, it's just as rowdy is just as impulsive, is just as much cursing you out, um, but but they can relate to that patient. So I think within within my experience, I've tried to, where I can, um, you know, either write about it or when I'm the actual, like, physician, question the people that are bringing up, like, the suggestions of, well, they're not noting disparity, but I'm noticing it. So, like, we had a, we had a female... Uh, adolescent female inpatient. She got restrained um, intramuscular injection or PRN. And I can't, and she's Mm. like, it's like classic protocolus, right? Like extraocular gyrus. And I'm like, does she usually, because I wasn't on the inpatient, I just was the the on-call doc. I'm like, does she usually look like this? And they're like, you know, sometimes she's playing around. I'm like, pretty sure, you know, most of us don't kind of play, play around in this kind of manner. And, you know, I'm like, you know, let's get a congestion. I think that there's a crisis that's happening. But again, they, they couldn't see her, right? And when I say see her, like, they couldn't see her as 
a human who is should be valued irrespective of the location that she's at. And unfortunately, that that happens way too often. Um, so the one time that you, or not one time, but the times that I get patients who are of color, you know, they, they are appreciative of me. But then at the same time, like within the system, particularly for uh, Afro-Caribbean um, patients or parents in, in this respect, right? Like I have to explain to colleagues why we might, it's not taking a different route, but like why the route towards management might take longer, right? So I'm like, I know for some patients, they come in and they're like ready to put their kid on Concerta or whatever other medication, right? For black and brown patients, there's legitimately several months of buildup. They already know that I'm thinking this this would benefit them, but they, they're like, no, I want to see how we engage, how you engage my child over months. And over months, I still hear the complaints. I still hear the frustration. And then maybe it is six months down the line. They're like, hey, that's not, you used to mention this thing. Uh, what's that about? And I'm like, oh, you mean the X, Y, Z? Yeah, we could try it. And then they try it. But I, I, I've built trust. They've built trust in me. Then undoubtedly, more often than not, they actually find like a positive result. But the, the way in which, like you all get um, 360 evaluations, you know, like at the end of the year, uh, you get evaluated by randomly anonymous people that you select. I had a colleague, I'm assuming it's a colleague, they said the thing that I should stop is spending, quote, an inordinate amount of time explaining to parents. And I was like, wow. This is what we do. Wow. Yeah. Right. But I, they may not recognize that when they're making that comment, they're likely making that comment about me spending time with particular yeah. parents. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so sometimes even when someone's trying to make a positive suggestion, they don't even recognize how it's actually undercutting the historical nature of like, yes, like our particular field, there's a lot of stigma. So I, I have to spend extra time mm-hmm. um, explaining risks, benefits, why I'm thinking this way. And so for that to come up, you know, it, even the person that was reviewing it with me was like, I don't really know what to make of that comment. Um, I was like, yeah, no, I, I, I completely understand where that person's coming from, but they, they, they're viewing it incorrectly. Um, so so I, I, I just echo everything Danielle and, and Amanda are saying. And, and I would add to that because how much does it take for that patient to be then labeled non-adherent or non-compliant because it takes mm-hmm. them longer to get yes. to that point? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Like I know for sure part of my uh, clinic is providing substance use treatment and had a like 17, 18-year-old female who figured out a way to, to talk to her pediatrician and say, hey, I'm struggling with opioids. And she gets into our clinic and there's laws in multiple states. Like if, if you're 12 or older and you have a substance use disorder, you can you can get help irrespective of parental consent. And when I talked to the, the mother, black mother, she was like, I don't think she needs those medications. I was like, you know, ma'am, um, I'm not saying that your daughter's doing, you know, cocaine or hair, but like she acknowledged and we have test results. 
that there's certain things that are in her system. It's going to be so hard for her to just try to like muscle it through that you wouldn't do this if this was like diabetes, uh, uh, an MI. You wouldn't say, oh, well, we'll just figure it out. Um, and then, but again, having to coach her through the idea that this is actual evidence based treatment, she's a part of a program, that I understand why she is thinking this way. Because uh, she had all these misconceptions about just like what, you know, treatment is, what it means to be in a program. Um, but now the girl successfully on medication, doing well. Um, but but again, if, if someone's not able to have that conversation with the mother, you know, I, you know, who knows? I don't know if the mother kicks her out the house. But but those are conversations that I have with, um, you know, patients that are identified as min- minoritized more often because even in that like transitional age, you know, youth, 18, 19, 20, it's like legally, yes, I know you can tell me, don't talk to your parent, but like your parent supports you in all other ways. It, within our culture, it, 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 it's, it's dynamic that you have to have these, try to have these conversations. And again, you, you layer culture on top of like medicine, on top of racism, on top of yeah. society at large. Yeah, super hard to have these conversations in 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking that my clinic <laughs> allows for an hour. But yeah, I, I it's, this is hard work, man. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like there's you, all of you just mentioned and touched on these very, various different areas within the system that keeps us as Black physicians down in some ways. And a lot of it is patient facing. Um, but I'm very curious as to like what's the provider-facing stuff that we sort of deal with, the stuff that we deal with as, as we go through training and as we go through, I mean, you mentioned a little bit, Kevin, a little bit about um, the feedback that you would get. And, and Amanda, I know you've done some work with looking at like racism within the field of psychiatry itself. So I'm very curious as to like what that looks like as we are providers and we move through this these spaces, how that weighs on us and how that weighs on our mental health. Can, can I, I, I won't ask Danielle because of where she is, but Amanda, has this like phrase? Have you heard this phrase? Hey, Amanda, I have. I'm a. I'm a co-resident. Amanda, I have a really good patient for you. Yeah. <laughs> have you Have you heard that? Oh yeah. Okay. And what, and, what, and what does that generally mean for you when you hear, hey, I got a really good patient for you, Amanda? It's usually going to be a black patient, but sometimes, though, interestingly until I shut that down, they wanted to send me like the racist white patients. I was like, whoa, just because I'm telling you guys oh, not to no. be racist don't mean I want the racist, like <laughs> all the racist white oh, no. patients. Like, I'm trying to help you guys. You guys are the doctors. So like, you know, that doesn't mean, I was like, no, you guys need to work with them. So in- interestingly though, and unfortunately, I end up having to work with them, obviously. But it's like, so it's been both sides, but usually it's, you know, it's like a black patient, you know, especially if it's a black patient who's like disgruntled, you know, they're like, oh, you should go see Amanda. And I'm like, you know, I mean, in a way it's annoying, but also it's like, I do do a better job with that patient than they do. So it's kind of like, you know, you you kind of have to balance the two. Like I, I appreciate getting patients who really want black psychiatrists, but at the same time, you know, you also have to balance what you can handle. And we, we can only be so many places at once, which is why we need to invest in the pipeline of more black psychiatrists. So when people are like, what can I do? I'm like, you can put some money into investing in more black psychiatrists. Because I also don't, I, I also disagree with sort of 
whatever school of thought and Dr. Harrison can maybe say what this school of thought is. I don't know what it is called technically where you think as a psychiatrist, like you can make it work with any patient and like your lived experience doesn't matter. Like, you know, your racial back, like I can like, yeah, I'm like a, a just give an example. Yeah. I'm a white lady who like has never talked to a black person before, but like I, I can listen, I can be here. And I'm like, you're never going to have the same set of skills as a black psychiatrist who has gone through racism, is encountering racism, and is literally doing the scholarship and the expertise and the research into the effects of racism. So because of that, I think like the best, the thing that would make me feel better mental health wise is having more of us because I feel so empowered, like just being in this space is empowering for me. But when like I have, I have multiple black female supervisors this year, and that's been like, it literally is like, sorry, it's just night and day. Like my black supervisors are just brilliant because they have done the work, the, the scholarship into actually helping me to navigate racism. They can share their knowledge of what they're doing. And we like learn from each other. And I feel like with my other interactions, <laughs> it, it tends to be, it's, it's, not as good of an experience, put it that way, just, at least for me, because I really want to learn how to help my patients navigate racism. And I like to talk about, like, I get very fired up and I like to talk about those things. And it's just been so, to talk about it with a black woman is just, I literally leave my supervision like empowered. Whereas I actually had a, another supervisor who I actually fired <laughs> because she got mad at me. This is, and this is a prime example of like people in supervisory roles. And Dr. Harrison and Dr. Simon can probably relate to this. So I was late to our supervision because I was stuck in a meeting that I was running like as the resident for like someone very high up in our department. And that person knew that like the meeting stopped at a particular time. But, you know, like a lot of people, they're long winded. He was like talking beyond the time. Right. So obviously I'm running the meeting. He knows I have to end at this time, but I can't just end the meeting, right? Like there's so many power Shut dynamics up. in that. I'm a resident, I'm black. So anyways, I, I'm thinking, oh, like my white supervisor will understand, right? And I was like seven minutes late or something. And she proceeds to like browbeat me and say how as a woman, no, excuse me, as a white woman, uh, she had to learn as a resident how to just end the meeting. And sometimes you need to just cut people off. And even if they're in a leadership role, you need to tell them what they need to do and everything. And her time is really important. And I was like, I'm sure that works for you as a white woman. And, that's and now we'll take a break to hear from our sponsor, TrueLearn. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying listening to the show. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn and thank them for sponsoring the Black Doctors podcast. TrueLearn is a medical exam preparation company that helps you outperform on your boards. If you are a medical student or resident physician, you should definitely check out their products. If you sign up, please use the code BDPODCAST and you'll get a discount. They have resources for both DO students as well as MD students and even physician assistants. When it comes to residency licensure, they offer question banks for over eight different specialties. TrueLearn gives analytics that give you insight into your study habits, your question responses, and tracks you along with your peers. Students and residents average 20% improvements after completing a TrueLearn smart bank. Check them out at truelearn.com. And again, remember to use the code BDPODCAST to receive your special discount. Now back to the show. What they need to do and everything. And her time is really important. And I was like, 
I'm sure that works for you as a white woman and that's great, good for you. But that does not work for me as a black woman. And I would not feel comfortable doing that. And so I sat through multiple sessions with her. If she had let it go after that, we would have been good. But literally week after week after week, she continued bringing it up and continued to browbeat me about how I was seven minutes late and how I need to learn how to end meetings as a woman. So I said, I need a different supervisor. And I switched and got a black female supervisor. And I told her everything. And she was like, what? <laughs> and it was just like, I, I was like sitting there feeling bad every week. And I'm like, wait, why am I being made to feel bad? Because this person like made the meeting run longer. So it's little things like that that become big. And just having black supervisors is just like, Black people in the space, coworkers, like, it's just so empowering. So I guess then that's a good example of, I guess, what Nate, you were asking, like, mm-hmm. what is it that we have to endure with our own mental health every mm-hmm. day? So not only do we have to, you know, go through medical school, go through <laughs> residency like everyone, but then like the daily nonsense <laughs> that you have to endure, like the daily white privilege, the daily white fragility that Amanda was just talking about that you have to endure and that you have to try to support. And it it somehow seems like you have to be empathetic for them. Like, how did this turn into me having to be empathic towards you? Like, this is my supervision session. Um, And that's something that it weighs on you like every day. You know, they talk a lot about microaggressions and I don't know if microaggressions are really micro because they just add up and add up like every day you have to come in and deal with that and then every day you have to think about what's going to happen today like it can result in anxiety it can Mm -hmm. result in depression it can be triggering it can result in trauma i now i am at the howard university but hate you you know (laughs) well and if you didn't know um steven was my student when I was like a second year resident. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm very proud of him and all that he does. Um, he's like, I was like, yeah, this is a great kid, even though I'm the same age as him. But yeah, so um, <laughs> I digress. But, you know, I was at Howard. It was a protective bubble. I am still here, but I wasn't always at Howard. I didn't do my fellowship at Howard. And I talked a little bit about this at NPR, like, Every day, it will be something in my fellowship. Like, mm. who is it going to be today? Like, is it going to be an attending insulting me? Is it going to be an attending assault, insulting um, my institution and where I went to medical school and residency? Is it going to be an attending questioning my knowledge and saying, you know, subtly or not so subtly that, oh, I am lucky to even be here? No, you are lucky to have me that I considered mm-hmm. applying here. But, and then it's, then it's a patient asking if I'm the doctor. It's a colleague saying they thought that I was the sitter. Then it's trying to study yeah. for my boards at the same time. Like it's a lot weighing on us. And it's not like, oh, this is burnout. You know, we all get go through burnout. Like this is something that happens. This is different when one of my great mentors, the first black psychiatrist who was the president of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Alpha Stewart said, this is beyond burnout. This is arson. Like when someone is Mm -hmm. doing this to you intentionally. So there's a difference between 
I am tired. I'm burning out here. You know, it's a lot. No, it's when someone is intentionally doing something to you in every aspect and you have to figure out how to mitigate this, how to survive. Like, that's a lot. And if you don't have the support and your own support, mental health support. So I got back into therapy when I was a fellow because of all the things that were happening to me um, personally and professionally at that time as a fellow. And I have a therapist who was a black woman who worked in the same institution as I I did, a black woman with locks, natural hair, glasses, who like understands all the things. And that's who I needed. That's who I needed. And that's who people in our community need, people who look like us. Like a white woman supervisor that Amanda had, she could never be my therapist. Because when I tell her about this, I don't need someone gaslighting me and asking me and questioning me. Like, is that really what they meant? Is that really what happened? And that person can't even understand how empowered they are with their white privilege. Understand that I can't just end the meeting because I don't know what I'm going to get on my evaluation. I don't know what that person's going to say. Like, well, Danielle, Amanda. Kevin, they're aggressive. You know, I was trying to talk to them. I was trying to teach them. And then they ended that meeting like an aggressive black woman would. And then that's going to be on my evaluation. That's going to follow me around that reputation in the institution. So no, ma'am, I can't just end the meeting like that. Well, Amanda can't, but I can because, you know, I'm an attendant now. (laughs) And I I just be like, I don't have time for this. I gotta just I'll talk to y'all later. But when you're a trainee and you're a medical student, um, you can't do that. And I don't have the privilege to do that. And excuse me that that infringed on your white fragility, but I don't have that opportunity. So when we talk about racism and people say like, you know, I don't, I, people should not be lynched. Yes, the Ku Klux Klan is bad. You you can't not see a patient because they're black. Yes, they can understand that. And they can say, well, I'm not racist, but can they understand how they're empowered by their white privilege to get to do and say things and to be at different spaces and not to be questioned and not to be gaslit? And then racism is not just racism is not just the interpersonal like this levels to this. It's disinvestment in a group, a community. It's the deliberate refusal of giving resources, but those those resources are time, money, energy. So a lot happens out here that we all have to deal with. You have to deal with it as a student, even if you don't know. As a student, you might say, there's a particular uh, hospital system here in D.C. How are students go there and rotate there? They also have students from another PWI. You'll be in there. You're excited. You're a resident. I mean, you're a student. You're like, yes, I'm here on my rotation. I'm ready to save the world. And then you say the exact same thing as the student from, you say the same thing as the student from that other institution across the city. You say it first, but they ignore you. And then they're like, yeah, yes, student from that PWI, you are so correct. You are so talented. And then they write in your evaluation, you should be more like that white man from that PWI when you, mm. they didn't even see you they didn't even hear you so that's what we have to deal with that we have to deal with those things on a daily basis and racism at so many different levels because people can understand and they can accept like interpersonal racism 
should not go on. But they can't understand and accept that these institutional policies and these cultural norms that are allowed to perpetuate, that's what continues to hurt our community. That's what continues to hurt our students, our residents, our trainees, our me, ECPs, our young attendings that you're trying to retain. I wasn't retained at the place Mm. that I did my fellowship. And why was that? Because I was given an opportunity that I wouldn't have been given. They told me to have a seat and wait. I'm the youngest program director, Black program director in this country. But they told me and my other institution to wait a couple years before I could have my own resident. Wow. So that's how, you know, racism, that's how, that's what we have to deal with. Um, And it's not that you don't deal with it when you're at an HBCU because we have our own levels of internalized racism also that we allow to be perpetuated. We have to go out into the city, into other places, other rotation sites and rotate around and deal with other institutions where things are being allowed to, allowed (laughs) things are being allowed to continue and continue years and years of complaints or concerns being brought up. I would say, um, Having been a resident at Morehouse, it was interesting to engage with the medical students. At the time, I think they had like 100 per class. And one of the notable things for Morehouse was this like multi-year, everyone passing boards, everybody matching. And I don't want to, there's a part of me that doesn't want to call it internalized racism. There's a part of me that does. But you would have this whole cohort of people who in essence banded together and said, Hey, we're not going to let anybody not do well. Right. Um, for the, for the most part. And in terms of the, the match, it would always like, it'd be like, Oh, I'm going to Mayo Clinic. I'm going to MGH. I'm going to U Chicago. I'm going like, they'd all be super happy to be going to all these other places. Right. And, for those at least that I was relatively close with, they would, most would acknowledge when they then get to that institution, they're like, man, like residency sucks. And I'm like, it does, but then it doesn't in part because I'm at Morehouse and my cohort were, well, including me, four black guys. So I was like, you know, we helped each other out. We held each other down. Um, our supervisors looked like us. And so... As much as you value the name associated with the institution, you have to value the people that are at that institution. Um, and, you know, oftentimes we see when individuals find themselves like, oh, I'm the first black such and such at this program. Their institution, their experience is not yeah. great. It's like, yes, because you, you have no, the, the system has no actual functional support for you being the first black such and such resident fellow uh, in, in whatever specialty. And, and that often actually does lead to, to burnout. You know, it's like, here it is, you're, you're just finishing residency. And I literally had someone tell me, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm like, sabbatical from what? Like, you, you just finished. But if, if your experience has been day in, day out, and you don't have like any renewing source, be that therapy, be that your close girlfriend, guy friends, you, you sure want to leave and say, you know what, I just need a break. So, so I definitely have seen that. 
and and people who are you know supposed to be finishing just saying like this is this has been too much of an experience um and so i, it, I i've been fortunate you know residency solid i think residency carried me through fellowship because then half of my fellowship was like via zoom because of pandemic so i was like oh i'm good by myself i don't need to hear the daily mantras of people questioning me um and it's like oh Zoom call shut. Sorry, got to go. Um, so that was partially helpful. Yeah. Um, but we definitely see a lot of burnout. At least I hear a lot of burnout from, from Black colleagues. Which is uh, a perfect segue. We're going to talk about burnout next. Those examples that you shared about your experiences in the psychiatric training pathway, the things you see with your patients. Danny, thank you so much for that perspective from being an actual program director um, and valuable um, burnout, is, it's been a, a big word in the news as it relates to healthcare heroes, especially since the pandemic. But we've been suffering through that in part due to all the things that we go through as underrepresented minorities in medicine as Black residents and physicians. So Amanda, like, how have you experienced burnout or how have you uh, kept yourself from burning out? So I feel like when people leave me alone, that's protective from burnout. When I say leave me alone, I mean all the daily, like, racist, annoying stuff that they mention. If people just let me do my work, like, see my patients, do my thing, do what I need to do for residency, I'm good. <laughs> Once there starts to be other things, I know that's when it really starts to weigh on me. So, like, you know, I am somewhat well-known in my residency for being a person that stands up against racism. And that has come with retaliation, not so much from like my residency program, like my residency program is very supportive, but like hospital staff, right? So when I go on to a rotation, sometimes racist hospital staff know who I am before I arrive there um, and do things wow. to make my experience more difficult because they've heard of my work that I've done standing up for black patients. And I know that for a fact because my black staff look out for me and they tell me what's happening. And that's another beneficial thing about having black people in the space. It's not even just psychiatrists, but like some of the most empowering and protective from burnout when that stuff is going on. And I mean, like, you know, white nurses questioning or trying to bully me into putting in an order. And I'm like, I'm not going to put in that order. Sorry. Um, you can call, you can call my attending, call him. I'm sure he won't be happy to be woken up in the middle of the night, but no, I'm not giving this extra medicine to this patient. What's been the most protective has been in those instances, if there aren't black colleagues, because I actually have a significant number of black psychiatry colleagues at Yale, which is amazing, black nurses, you know, black milieu counselors, even like the black business associates, you know, the secretaries look out for me. They're like, look, Dr. Calhoun, like watch your back. Like this staff member is like, you know, doing X, Y, and Z, or keep in mind this patient has a history of violence. You want me to go in with you. Like they look out for you in ways that are just so protective, you know, because I feel like, man, I'm actually working as part of a team. Does that mean that every per white person I work with is bad? No. But what I'm saying is overwhelmingly, if I have black staff there, they're, they're going out of their way to look out for me and to make sure that like, I'm going to be okay. Do you need help with this patient? Do you need this? Do you need that? If a patient is starting to get aggressive, they're the first one standing in between me and the patient, like back up, back up. Cause they know, I don't, you know, we're not trained to like fight, you know, or keep people from fighting, but they are right. right? So I feel like 
by black colleagues, frankly, have been have been really, really protective. And for me, similar to what Dr. Simon says, I do a lot of writing. So when I feel like I want to scream because I feel like, how are we going to fix this medical system and make it safe for black patients? Because I don't feel it's safe now. I write about that interaction. And that's been very Hmm. empowering for me because I feel like I'm giving a voice. I know I'm giving a voice to other people who have had similar experiences who don't feel empowered or don't have the time or aren't able to write about it. And when I'm able to publish these things, I've gotten overwhelming numbers of emails from people that have said things like, oh my gosh, I've had this experience too. I'm working in this institution and this happened to me, or I saw this happening to my patients. And something about that is very protective and empowering for me because I feel like, okay, at least I am making our uh, I'm making this part of the conversation. Like you're not going to ignore this, right? Like you're you're gonna I'm gonna pull you in and draw you in to hear my story, hear what's going on. And I feel like that has been so important. So like one of the biggest successes I've had from publishing was that I have an older brother who has severe autism, and when COVID hit, he was being denied the COVID vaccine. Well, when the COVID vaccine started being distributed, because he needed some oral sedation because he's not going to tolerate like a shot. Um, and my parents are in the medical field. My dad is a psychiatrist <laughs> and my mom is a pharmacist. So like they know what they're talking about. But he was just being turned away. They're like, no, we're not vaccinating him. So he went months without being vaccinated. And I wrote a piece because wow. I was really angry and I published it in Time magazine. And it's titled something like the medical, my brother is still unvaccinated because the medical system is ableist. And within a few days, he was vaccinated. And so I was like, wow, like I can't make a difference. And, you know, it saved my brother. At least he got it. He was able to get vaccinated. And so in a way, I feel like that's something that I really do in order to protect myself. It's like, you're going to hear my story. Like, I will not be silenced. And I feel like that's been really helpful for me. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Harrison or Dr. Simon, how have you experienced burnout or protected yourself? from the effects of burnout? Uh, I'll talk about the the protective aspect. So since residency, I've been going to therapy regularly unless I'm on vacation or the therapist is on vacation. And so that has been very helpful. Um, And so that started in Atlanta when I moved here, I got a different therapist, but we still regularly meet. The writing aspect that Amanda just talked about um, has been, been particularly helpful. I think just generally because Thank you so much for joining us for the first half of this conversation. We really enjoyed talking to these incredible, incredible folks. For today's sign out, a couple things going on. I'll mostly just update you on the state of the show. Uh, thanks so much for your support. Last week's episode was was fantastic, uh, very well received. I was it was just me talking about the podcast and giving advice on starting your own podcast. I don't really like doing solo episodes. I don't like hearing myself talk, but I guess you enjoyed it. So I guess I'll be more where that came from. In other news, I finally got around to setting up an online store. There's a couple of items in there that you can purchase, some t-shirts and coffee mugs and other stuff. I really tried to just make it all affordable and cool so you can kind of help share the message of the show. As we move forward, I am working on bringing on some more guests. If you know anybody, feel free to slide in the DMs, one, whether on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Stephen Bradley MD. I'm also on Instagram at Stephen Bradley MD and the Black Doctors Podcast. You can reach me there and on either of my websites, you can go and submit a recommendation or a request to hear from a specific guest. So if there's anybody whose voice you want to hear on the show, please feel free to reach out and let us know. 
Thank you so much for listening and for supporting the show. Again, the easiest way to support us is just to leave a review and share with someone that you know that can benefit from the things that we're discussing here. Thank you for listening to the Black Hunters podcast because representation matters.